0: any sinners in the room this morning who are glad that God does not require justice at your hand, but receives it fully by the work of Jesus? Can I get an amen on that? That is what we're about here at Hope Church. It's great to meet you if this is your first time. My name's uh, Tom. I serve as a pastor here along Vic, and uh, we're going to go straight into the book of Mark. Uh, So if you can start turning there, we're going to be in chapter 7, verse 26, through to verse 37. Uh, Finishing off chapter 7 here, moving at a... Fast, fast-paced. But just before I start there, while you're turning, I just want to add a couple of announcements. We've got a, uh, our, our apologetics uh, conference coming up in September. September 18th is going to be a Saturday during the day, 9 till 4.30ish. And then on the Friday before that, we have a debate scheduled between myself and a, an atheist guy from Queensland Atheist Society or wherever they're from, whatever their church is called. And uh, we're going to be here and uh, having a public, free, open to everybody, invite everyone, you know, sort of debate uh discussing uh, is belief in the scripture in the scripture. i'm just i'm gonna fail i've lost is belief in the christian scriptures logical that's going to be the topic of debate and he we ran into each other on friday night while i was evangelizing in the city and he assured me that i'm at a loss for that uh he, that that's an atheist win to ask that question so that's going to be good fun and then the saturday is the conference And I can just uh, very happily announce that we've we've, uh, uh, attained a sponsor, a very proud sponsor in Ligonier Ministries, who has decided to put their hand out and offer us a a, a good uh, handful of sponsorship towards us. More details will come in the future, but they're going to be sponsoring uh, part of our conference, which is amazing and thankful, and we bless the Lord for that. If you don't know Ligonier Ministries, go and download the app. It's, It's spelt like it sounds if you can send it out, Ligonier, and it's uh, the teaching fellowship of the late R.C. Sproul, who I know many people in this room have been extremely blessed by. The only other thing I want to say is, uh, we, we, we had one last week where we were praying for Blake and Silpin, and we just saw the Lord answer us, but we had a, a pre-service prayer meeting from 5 till 5.15 uh, last week, and I just want to announce that on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings, so 9 till 9.15, and 5 till 5.15, I'm going to be up in that room and uh, open to anybody to come and just pray for the following service that we're about to meet so that we might come with expectation that God will bring in unbelievers, uh, bring uh, the, the Word of God in power, change hearts, change lives. And so if, uh, if you're free or you can just come to church a little bit earlier and meet us up there and pray with us together that God would move mightily through the service. I invite you there. Pre-service church meetings gets you're pumped for the Lord's Day worship service. But I'm now going to go into the book of Mark because I do trust that you're there by now. The topic of today's sermon is the gospel or the long-awaited gospel where God would include the Gentiles is being foreshadowed through the ministry of Jesus today. The long-awaited inclusion of the Gentiles, which is non-Jews, into the salvation of God is being foreshadowed through what is going on today in the ministry of Jesus. We're coming in this section. It's going to not make much sense if we don't read the immediately preceding context, which we can see uh, for, um, up in about verse 14, 15. Uh, this is the, the context is that Jesus has just had a fiery debate. It wasn't much of a debate. It was a one throwdown win, KO, uh, uh, belt goes to Jesus. He beat the Pharisees. They were asking about stupid traditions and the elders' laws, which were not biblical but were added, and that's what they held to more fast than the Bible. And Jesus told them that they were hypocrites. They have no true religion. In fact, all of your religion is based and built on a lie that makes no sense. Their whole religion was based on the presupposition that inside you're kind of clean, at least neutral, and outside is sinful things that you touch or you eat or you... Uh, speak to somebody or you th- you know, something comes into you and makes you unclean. And Jesus says, you're foolish because nothing on the outside of you is able to make you unclean before God. Right? We're talking moral uncleanliness in sin. Nothing on the outside of you is able to do that. And we read, contrary to the Seventh-day Adventists and other friends of ours, uh, we, we will read that uh, Mark uh, translates that as meaning that Jesus declared all foods clean, that's why we have New Covenant streaky bacon and pork sausages. Oh, yeah, amen that. Okay, justification I had to get you warmed up for. But bacon, yeah, amen. I like it. Can we get an amen for the New Covenant? Right? So Jesus has declared all foods clean. And, and so we see in verse 15 that he's undercutting and blowing to pieces the foundation of their religion when he said, there is nothing outside a person. Now, let's just set the scene again. He's standing up and talking to the crowds now. The Pharisees came and, and they would have cleared a space so that they can come near to Jesus and ask a question because to touch the other people would make them unclean. And so Jesus calls the crowd in. They rush to the front, trap the Pharisees, probably press up against them. They're going to have to go and take a bath now because they have silly rules. Jesus presses them in and says, listen to me. They just tried to undercut my ministry. Let me destroy their false teaching so that I can liberate you from the abuse. And he says, there is nothing verse 15 outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him and then down later in verse 21 he shows us that it's what's in you that is the problem it's the sin the pride the folly the filth the sexual immorality the sensuality which just follows your passions that's the problem So your your solution cannot be more rules and fences. It needs to be recreation from the heart and cleanliness that comes from another, which is Jesus Christ, which he accomplished by shedding his blood and sending his Holy Spirit to regenerate us. That's the gospel. So much better than empty, vain, rule-based religion is the glorious gospel where God, by his grace, freely justifies us and glorifies his name. And, And in true Mark fashion... Jesus will say all of that, and then he proves it with what he does. Like There's there's hints between what Jesus says and then what he does in miracles and things like that next, which often shed light, and that happens today. He said that there is no place you can go, thing you can touch, thing you can eat that actually makes you unclean before the Lord God, and then with his band of motley disciples, he marches into one of the most pagan, demonic, unclean areas on the map. And do you think that the Holy One of God got a little bit defiled and unclean as he went into that unclean territory? Of course not. He's showing by his actions what he just preached loud and clear. And, and this is important because it's precisely because he's uh, trying to train his disciples to think like him that he goes into this area. So we see this in the Gospels. He'll, he'll teach the public and then he'll take his disciples aside and really drill into them the lesson and the meaning of the parable and they were privy to secrets and mysteries which the rest of the people would not get here and we're getting to the part of Jesus' ministry where his his whole galilean ministry up, up up at the north of the country near where he lived and and was raised that's coming to an end he's going to now go and spend a few months in this gentile area training and speaking to the disciples Then he's going to come back down, do a couple of miracles, and go down to Jerusalem. And he's uh, uh, closing in on the day of his death, and the assassination plan is continuing to grow in the background. So Jesus is going to train his disciples away from all the Jewish crowds, going up into the unclean areas, and he's teaching them by doing that that there's no land space you can go which is unclean. God owns it all, and he commands us to go everywhere. To Jesus, as he said uh, in the book of, Ma- uh, book of Matthew, we remember when Jesus sent out the, 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 gen- uh, the disciples sorry, to go and do their own ministry like he was doing, he told them to use a practice that the Jews used against Jews. So what the Jews would do is if you went into Gentile land... The land was unclean. As you come back and cross the property line into Jewish land, you dust off your feet so that no Gentile dust comes into Jewish land. Right? Makes sense? That, that seemed logical to you? That's what they would do. And so Jesus says, when you go out preaching in, in, in Israel and they don't accept you and they don't receive the gospel of the kingdom, when you leave them, you dust off your feet because it's lack of belief that is unclean not land space and who owns it. It's lack of belief that to Jesus is unclean. So he actually leaves these unbelieving people and goes to the Gentile area. What we will see is that what children refuse to eat at the dinner table, other people will receive freely. And so we're going to read now from verse 24 to 37. This is the Word of the true and living God written by the Holy Spirit through the hands of men and here for us for our benefit today. Verse 24. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syro-Phoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. He said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went up through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Tecapolis. And he brought to him, and they brought to him, a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him and taking him aside from the crowd privately he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting it's biblical for preachers to spit i don't want anybody complaining in the front row about my <clears throat> spitting on his hands touched his tongue and looking up to heaven he sighed and said to him ephatha that is be opened and his ears were opened his tongue was released and he spoke Plainly, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But they, uh, but the more that he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, "He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak." This is the word of the living God. May He bless it as we read it and preach it this morning. Well, this is a an amazing story because we see some very unkosher activity going on by Jesus, some very offensive language used and some, uh, if you're a Jew especially reading this or a disciple walking with Jesus, everything that happens is shocking and unbelievably unreligious. It's sacrilegious what Jesus is doing according to the, uh, the, the habits of the day. Well, I want to go up and meet this woman, this Syrophoenician woman who is a Gentile. We're going to see her place, her plight, and her plea, and then we'll see what Jesus does to her and this, uh, uh, this deaf and mute man. Up in verse 24, as we said, Tyre and Sidon are filthy, demonic, pagan places, not simply because there's such thing as a... As a more unclean area, but because of the practices and the, the false religion and pagan worship that had become so famous there. Even in this unclean area, there, it was, it's obvious that as Jesus went, the news had spread of this Jewish healer, and even though he tried to be hidden so that he could dis- uh, train up the disciples, it wasn't possible, people heard and flocked to him. But this area that they're in, in, Sire, in Tyre and Sidon, has long been of Israel all throughout the Old Testament is a is a long known formidable enemy of Israel. It was one of the most powerful uh, 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 cities. It was Tyre was a port city. It had great import. It was ama- known for its amazing uh, building and woodwork uh, in the old uh, in the Old Testament times. It was a force to be reckoned with. And they were actually the areas. Uh, it was Tyre that introduced for the first time Baal worship which, if you know your Old Testament, was one of the plights on the Israel people, the continual God they would go back to and commit adultery on Yahweh, the prophets would say. Baal worship was introduced to Israel by Tyre. So this is an enemy of the Israelite people through and through. But the Holy One goes there and is not defiled. He walks there with his band of disciples. They were very sketchy about this whole deal. They didn't understand that it was okay to go and do this, but deeper and deeper, Christ's sermon was being driven into their hearts. (coughs) It says in verse uh, uh, 25 that immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, here's the problem. There's a great problem in, in, of course, her whole situation. Her plight is that her daughter, and the, the word here is little daughter, like a young daughter, toddler, to you know, not yet in, in primary school, small daughter, had an unclean, demonic spirit. And you have to understand that, that just hearing this implies certain things. Because we remember back earlier in Mark, there was a guy who was sitting in the synagogue listening and he had a demon, but nobody knew until he started convulsing and yelling at Jesus. Well, we've got a a demon here who who has not come into contact with Jesus and yet is manifesting in such a way that they know she has an unclean spirit. And it's the kind of unclean spirit that even a pagan demon-worshipping person is able to say, this is gross. Like, I'm filthy, but that's pretty dirty. Like, even for me, for my pagan standards, this is an unclean spirit. So, so we know that this is a disrupting, harmful, probably violent spirit that is in this little daughter. What else we need to realize is this young girl does not have a demon because of her own pagan worshiping practice. God has not handed this young girl over to her, the desires of her heart and the, the worship that she's been practicing, you know, ere long. No, no, no. This daughter has a demon because her family Engages in this sort of practice, it it would be on the guilt and the conscience of the mother that her daughter has uh, an unclean demon because of what she was taking her family to do, and there was all sorts of twisted family-based children-involved sacrifices or or cultic religious practices that that happened up in Tyre. There's no doubt, though, that the reason this girl has a demon is because of the religion of the parents. It's also likely we can conclude that the the father is either dead or deserted because he's not here. He hasn't come running uh, to to the Messiah. It's likely that she's left the child with somebody or with nobody at home. If she's coming to Jesus, we can conclude that she's tried all of their usual ways. They had practices to try and get rid of harmful, dark spirits back in the other religions. So she's at her wit's end. Her daughter Can you imagine a small, beautiful daughter ravaged by a demon? And she's at home. She's stuck there. And she hears, she just hears the news. She's wondering, why is everybody running out of the streets? Where's everybody going? And somebody utters the name Jesus that she's probably heard of as the Jewish guy down in the land of Israel. But she can't get there. She can't go. She's got a demon-possessed daughter. But now he's come here. This Jesus is nearby. She is desperate and she immediately runs. And, and we can conclude, as says in a few verses, that there are crowds already. And, and we can take from the book of Matthew that, that she starts, uh, she's, she's actually following them for a while because the disciples, in all of their tenderheartedness, turn to Jesus and say, can you please shut this woman up? Send her away. She's screaming about a demon-possessed kid. Come on. Come on. We're doing ministry here. Right, that's, that's still the disciples. That's where they're at. And so, obviously, she's, she's been calling out for a while to the point that she annoys the disciples. She's at the back of the crowd, maybe, and eventually she breaks through and falls down at Jesus' feet. That's this woman's situation. And even worse is the fact, as we've said, she's not a Jew. Meaning that she's not covenantally bound to the people of God, the worship of God, the words of God, and the blessings of God. She's not covenantally that. She has no promises to Tyre that she, as a Syro-Phoenician woman, that she can call on and say, "God, you promised in your word to me." No, she has no 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 covenantal hope here. It says that she's a syro which means she lives in like the country of Syria and in the area of Phoenicia, uh, and w- whose capitals were Tyre and Sidon, terribly unclean places, terribly spiritually dark. And you see her desperate, desperate plea. She says, immediately she comes and she throws herself down at his feet, and she begged him, verse 26 says, to cast the demon out of her daughter. She is desperate at this point. In falling to the ground means that she's showing reverence, or at least a, a, a she's coming from a point of complete respect to Jesus. She calls him Lord in this section. In Matthew's gospel, we see that she comes forward and she actually calls him, son of David, Lord, have mercy on me. Which tells us that though she's a Gentile, Syrophoenician, unclean, pagan, involved in false worship that gets her daughter possessed, she knows enough, of her country's history and Israel's history, that there is apparently, this, this old guy we all remember from the, the olden days, King David, he was the powerful guy. He, he made alliances with Tyre. We remember King David. He's even in our history books here in Tyre. He was promised by their God that he would have a descendant to sit on the throne and rule the world. And apparently that descendant would have this, uh, this divine power and we're waiting for that. And, and so she's coming with some kind of knowledge of the, of the Jewish hope and she says, son of David, one who comes with power and authority and government on your shoulders, son of David. Where is this faith coming from? We don't know how much she's been taught. We don't know what she's been hearing from the crowds, but she believes with reverence and respect and desperation Son of David, have mercy on me. She's not crying out for something she thinks she deserves. She doesn't demand something that she wants. She begs for something she knows she has no place asking for. Son of David, Lord, have mercy on me. She begs. So she must also trust that he's a healer. So that's this woman. The place she lives, the plight she's in, and the plea that she is making to the Lord. And now we see her, Lord, this Jesus, the Holy One of Israel that is just cutting to pieces the religion of falsehood in Israel, now comes to her area with a tender heart of compassion. And verse 27 tells us what he says. He says, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, verse 27. He says to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right that the children's bread be thrown to the dogs. That's our tender Jesus. This is so confusing. You'll have feminist scholars that look at this and use this as a reason to prove that the Bible is not inspired. There's no way Jesus said this. Or maybe Jesus wasn't sinless because uh, this is a sin to offend such a person in such a way. To call a woman in this situation a dog would be the, the, the lowest scummy insult that somebody could make. And it's coming from this racial sexist slur from Jesus. To call somebody a dog, like we think dogs and we think, Pugs and French Bulldogs and beautiful German Shepherds and stuff like that. Uh, not so, right, right? If you've been on a mission trip, maybe India, maybe Myanmar, maybe Thailand. It's those sorts of dogs, the street dogs, that only the most tender-hearted, naive girls on the mission trip want to go up and pat to the risk of, of rabies and you're not, you're not coming back to Australia. You pat those, you're quarantined. They're foaming at the mouth, they're skinny, they're, made, they're eating other dogs that have died in the street, they're eating the scraps and the cigarette. it's those sorts of dogs. That's the dogs that ran free in the Middle East of those days. And to call somebody that was the most, and the reason the Jews called the Gentiles that was because they were scavenger people. Like spiritually, they just found what they could in the streets, made a god out of it, worshipped it, did something sexual for it, made sacrifices to it, shed its blood. They didn't care. They were just scavenger people. They had no standards. And so here's the slur that that grew is that those Gentiles are dogs. It, It was horribly offensive. But there is another word which can be translated dogs, which really means house dogs, little dogs, puppies. And, and there was some strands of domesticated dogs in the ancient world. Well, of course, the Egyptians had them. All sorts of uh, uh, countries had them. And, and there were some in the Middle East as well. Little dogs that were not feral and disgusting, but were house dogs, pets. And it's that word that Jesus uses. Because he's not actually trying to offend this woman. He's actually just showing her her place in the redemptive plan of God. He said that to her. And, of course, what he's, what he's getting at in, in saying that there's an order to this whole family thing. If you've had dogs and they happen to be house dogs and they're allowed inside and they're small enough that their jowls don't just sit on the kitchen table, if they're that sort of dog, you know that your kids need rules, that you can't just draw a line down the middle of your, pl- your plate and give some to the dog, eat it off the table, and then the kid has the rest. Right, we have rules around all of that. And, and, and so the, the dog could eat some scraps, but it has to come from what the kids don't want to eat, and it has to come after the dinner time, not during dinner. Like, there's all these rules. If you don't have them, uh, Jesus got some good ideas for it. But, but, but what Jesus is saying is there's an order to this whole thing. The kids must eat first. That's who the food has been prepared for. Only what the children refuse to eat or cannot eat can overflow to the dogs later. They're valued. We love them. We don't want them to starve. But the quality of what they get, the focus of what the mum is putting uh, effort into for the food is not... For the dogs, it's for the children, and, and what Jesus is getting at is what we call redemptive history. This is just a helpful term, like systematic theology, biblical theology. Redemptive history is the study that we can draw the storyline of God's salvation from Adam to Revelation. And the storyline of the Bible, redemptive history, is that God is intentional about who He makes covenant with for the sake of His glory. And so, He started, of course, with the whole world who was one man named Adam. And then he got more specific through Noah and he made a covenant with Noah. After Noah, then it was a covenant with Abraham and the Jewish people and all other races were missing out on this covenant. And then out of the Jewish people, who God gave prophecies and promises to, out of them, while many would reject the good grace of God, there would be a remnant, a collection of the elect or those people who did receive by faith the promises of God And through them, the Messiah would would come and fulfill the promises. They would believe, and through them, the gospel would explode to the rest of the world. But it has to be in that order. The Jews have to have the fulfillment of all of the promises and prophecies that were given to them from the beginning of their race in Abraham before the gospel could go out to the nations. God would not send all the, the prophets to all the world, and then bring them to Israel to be blessed, he would send the prophets and the word of God to Israel to explode outwards. So that it would be by, the Gentiles would be included by a process of overflow, not replacement. Overflow through the remnant, not replacement or substitution. We see this foreshadowed in Genesis 17. when, When God's making his covenant to Abraham, the very first Jew, the Jews were, children of Abraham, he said, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. This gospel is being foreshadowed for the, for the world. Psalm 72 says, may he, God, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. This is in the Old Testament that all the nations would come. Malachi 1 verse 11. So I gave you Genesis at the beginning, Psalms in the middle. Malachi at the very end of the Old Testament says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, that's east and west, I remember high school, from the rising of the sun right over to its setting, he will be great among the nations. God says, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So we have the promise in Abraham, the prayer in the Psalms, and the prophecy in Malachi that the whole world will receive this good grace of God. And yet, it had to happen in a certain Order. I'm belaboring this point because we need to get, this is the way we understand the whole of Scripture through God's covenants with the Old Testament people and then with the, those in Christ. This, this is God's redemptive history through the Jews, culminating in the Messiah, then exploding out to the rest of the world. It had to happen in that order. And so Jesus says to this woman, you'll get it, you'll get some grace. There'll be missionaries, there'll be apostles, there'll be, there'll be churches planted near you. Your time is not yet. I'm focusing on the Jews. I'm going to cut off their falsehood. I'm going to make an end for sin. I'm going to die for their sins. I'm going to destroy and judge and condemn their false religion. But through them will come a remnant that become Christian and take the gospel, but your time's not yet. That's what he's saying. So I didn't go with a whole outflowing ministry to Tyre and Sidon. He went to be private with the 12. And yet, we would want to ask, even in God's great redemptive plan that is so all-encompassing and specific and God made promises and he needs to keep them and he's got an order, surely Jesus can make exceptions in the ones and the twos that he so decides to do. He's he's not replacing the Jews. He's not cutting them all out. He's not deciding he's going to be Tyre and Sidon's Messiah now. We're just asking Jesus that this woman, whose tiny daughter at home is convulsing with demonic possession, would you just speak a word? Don't even speak. Just think about it. The demon will leave. Is he that heartless? Is he that ruled by the the prophecies and, and, and promises of the Scripture that he can't even take some wiggle room? And of course, he doesn't take wiggle room outside of the promises. He fulfills the promises. He's happy to pour out some grace, to, to take a cup of the dam, the, the water that is in the dam, and sprinkle it on those who are thirsty. He's happy to do that before a lot of time that the dam would break and it pour out to them. He's happy to do it because all throughout the Old Testament, God has been doing this. Jesus has been doing this in his ministry. He's pointing to the fact that this is a good thing to do. So we can even see back in, uh, back in verse uh, chapter, sorry, chapter 4 of Luke, when Jesus went and he, pro- he, he, he read Isaiah's prophecy and he said, Today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. And the people heard him and were offended. And then Jesus started saying to them, You're offended that a prophet has come to the children? I'm going to start taking it to the dogs. And he says to them, remember in the Old Testament when this happened, a prophet tried to speak to the children and they didn't listen? What happened? Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Right? They were in famine, they were in war. It was a terrible time. There was many, many widows, lots of fatherless households in Israel. God's covenant people in the days of the prophet Elijah who did miracles But how many of those did Elijah go to, resurrect their son, and give them magical, miraculous amounts of food in their pantry? Jesus answered, he says, Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. Tyre and Sidon. And a woman who has a widow there, who was a widow there. Jesus is saying, remember the Old Testament? No widows got mercy from Elijah. One got it in Sidon. And then he reminds me, he says, And there was many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman from Syria, also up in the area that Jesus now is. God has no problem taking from the rebellious children. If the children are hungry, they're thankful. They're receiving all that God their father would graciously give them, and they're being so well-nourished, they're taking it to others for blessing. That's great. But if the children rudely reject what has been given to them, spurn the food that is before them, and throw it away, preferring rather to lick the dust from the floor, then God takes what is theirs and happily gives it to the dogs. That is what this woman is praying for. Won't you, though? Won't a a dog that's hungry on the floor be able to at least, if crumbs are dropping off, eat them and Lord, that's all I want. And even a crumb is more than I deserve. I know, but please, just a crumb for this hungry, feral dog. And Jesus' response, he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. Jesus was foreshadowing this, this outgoing of the gospel as the prophets of old were foreshadowing the outgoing of the gospel in response to rebellious children the dogs would be fed he's foreshadowing that even now before the great commission is given before the holy spirit falls and they start preaching and missionaries are going up to syria in fact that's where the apostle paul will be sent out from maybe she's there at that maybe her young daughter is now old and she's there praying with the apostle paul and barnabas we don't know But what we know is that before that time comes, Jesus is mercifully foreshadowing and giving grace to this woman. And Mark wants us to know that. Mark wants us to see it. So he told her, go your way. Your daughter is healed. The demon has left your daughter, verse 29. And she went home. She had faith. She didn't need to see it. She didn't demand that Jesus come back with her so that if it doesn't work, you're still right there. She believed. She was begging for mercy aware of her own need and sinfulness, and happy to trust the word of Jesus Christ. This kind of thing is the thing that rebukes the faith, the so-called faith of the Jews. Because a similar situation has happened before, where where the centurion uh, comes to Jesus, the Gentile centurion says, I've got a sick boy at home, if you can just speak a word, you don't need to come, just say something, he'll be healed, I'll go home. And Jesus says at that instant... Wow, faith like this I've never seen in all of Israel. You want to touch me, you need to take me somewhere, you need to take me with you, but this guy believes on a word I can heal, and this woman does too. And it's actually when, when Jesus is um, uh, healing that man, that man's son, back in uh, Matthew chapter 8, he, he uses that as a sermon point, and he says, I tell you, he's speaking to the Jews, he's still down in Galilee at this point, he says, I tell you, many will come from east and from west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. You see this repeated theme? The children must receive, and if they do not... They will not stop the plan of the Father. Those from the east and west, as Malachi prophesied, will come into the house and sit at those empty seats that the children have left. God's purpose of grace, to go through the remnant of the Jews and explode through the gospel preaching Great Commission, was not going to be stopped by faithless children. And we see another example of this in the very next miracle, which we'll cover in a little bit of pace. So there is Jesus. He's healed this woman, this unclean woman that the disciples would have been so confused at. And then next he goes, so, so he does a, a big walking trip that would have taken him a few months. He goes up to Sidon, another city, and, and sort of horseshoes right around down to the other side of the Sea of Galilee from, uh, from Galilee, over the other side of the lake to the uh, uh, Gentile area called the Decapolis, the, the place of 10 cities, that means. So he goes to that area and there he pours out miraculous grace in very symbolic ways. Now in verse 31, so he goes to those Gentile areas. In verse 32, they they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. Probably what has happened is this this man had become deaf when he was very young so that the deafness caused the speech impediment. He, for, he doesn't know what he sounds like. His speech becomes slurred and confused and difficult to understand to the point that they would even just call him mute. He can't speak. It's not understandable. He is that deaf. Verse 33 says, Jesus takes him aside from the crowd privately. So there's a crowd now. A crowd is a mass. It doesn't matter where he is. What Jesus does is he does very intentional things to communicate to a man before sign language had come around, to communicate to a man what he was about to do. So he takes him, he, he couldn't hear the dialogue between his friends and Jesus. He takes the man aside privately to get some focus, and he does the following He puts his fingers into his ears, communicating clearly. I'm a, I'm, that's just not a normal part of conversation. Someone does that to you, fly swat him. Jesus is doing this, saying, I'm gonna do so, I'm the healer, you obviously know about me. I'm going to do something with your ears. Obviously, that is communicated. To awaken hope, I think that what Jesus wants to do is respond to believing faith. He wants this man to realize what Jesus is doing and, and start nodding and start hoping and start believing that even he could receive such grace. And then he does, if someone does this to you, you, you form a fist and give him the, the five fingers of fellowship. They, they spit, he spits and then touches the guy's mouth. And we just read that and go, not usual. There's nothing in the Old Testament. at prophecies of this. It's not fulfilling. I tried to find a biblical reason Jesus was doing this, and the best I got was that the commentators say, that's what the magicians of the Gentile areas did, which isn't a good answer. Like, does that sanctify tarot cards, and we just sort of take what they do and do it But No. No, friends. What he's doing is communicating something to him that can't be done through words. He's saying, you've seen, he's probably had this done to him, people spitting and touching his mouth to try and heal him to no avail. What Jesus is showing is, I'm doing something you're familiar with. He's just familiarizing this guy with the process. Thank you very much. Speech impediment time this morning. And so Jesus spits and touches the man's mouth, and he starts realizing, he's going to heal my mouth. He's going to heal my ears. I believe. I wonder what's going to happen. And Jesus further communicates what he's doing by looking up to heaven in a form of prayer so that this man knows that this is a divine prayer being made. And he says in one clear phrase, maybe he was able to sort of lip read and understand what Jesus was saying. He said it in the common language. He said, be opened." Verse 35, his ears were opened so he could hear now. The chirping of the birds, the running of the water, the rustling of the leaves, the, the bustling of the crowd. He heard it again. What a day of fresh relief. And then maybe he didn't even realize it, but he just, it, he just said something because of how beautiful it is. Wow! I'm, and then realizes that his mouth is also open. It says his tongue was released And he spoke plainly so that this is not just undoing uh, uh, biological pathologies, but, but even his mental side of his brain that had stopped learning how to speak, that had forgotten how to pronounce, it's all working again. And he's proclaiming, maybe in sighs and tears, the wonderful works of this Messiah Jesus. He's amazed. And the people around him are amazed. And then verse 36, so that so that the crowds wouldn't become extremely enormous and unmanageable, like Jesus has been doing already. He says, verse 36, he charged them not to tell anyone. But this man with a newly working mouth, with ears that have not heard in a long time, he didn't hear that command. He could not help but speak what had happened to him. And it says that the more that he... Charge them, do not speak. The more zealously they proclaim. Oh, he wasn't listening to the words. He could just hear. Right, Jesus is saying something. I can hear. He healed me. Don't tell anyone. I heard that too. This guy's a healer. Everybody come and receive grace. I think it, it's a little bit comical, but he's, he's going out. And what we need to see here is a picture of Gentiles being saved, not just physically healed, but spiritually saved as a people group. Jesus is foreshadowing something that would have been so familiar to the Jews. If you have a Bible with you, you can go to Psalm 135. One of the the ways that God would foreshadow this long-awaited hope of the gospel of grace going to the Gentiles was that he would deride and, and proclaim the utter folly and sinfulness of other idols. And he would show himself as the God to be reckoned with. Show that these other gods are useless. How many prayers have they answered for you? How many blessings have they bestowed upon you? They cost you the life of your children because you sacrificed them. I remember being in Myanmar and asking a bunch of guys probably less gracious than I should have been. All these same questions. Just ask how many, how many returns on investment, your little idol gods that you made in the shrine over there. How many times they've answered a prayer? How many friends they've healed? How many times they've helped a, a need that you have? Put down a bottle of water in front of them and say, I think this water bottle's done more for you in your life. It at least carries water and makes you not so thirsty. Why don't you worship it right now? Bow down. There it is. And the folly of it all starts cracking through their head. And why do we bow down to these things? Unhelpful, blind, mute, deaf gods. Psalm 135 is just such a text. God says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold the work of human hands. They have mouths that have been chiseled and forged but do not speak. They have eyes that have been painted on but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them, here's the the condemning part, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them those non-functioning gods that are not able to do what they've been created for you become like what you worship you become like what you worship and those people who would bow down to these things fall prey to the same manner of degradation they stop being able to do what god has made them for which is give him glory think logically act lovingly, live righteously. They can't do that when their gods are idols. So they are becoming like these deaf, mute, blind, unspeaking gods. So this man, this deaf man, this mute man is a picture to the Jews of the spiritual state of all the Gentiles and their gods in, in generation after generation, like this own man. In, in his life, the problem had gotten worse. First, it was deafness. Then the speech started giving way and then it was complete muteness so that he couldn't communicate. And so it's been through the ages of generations in Tyre and Sidon and surrounding nations that the, the Gentiles have committed themselves to blindness, plucked out their own eyes, cut out their own tongues, stopped their own ears by their false worship of the created order. And, and, and they're these deaf, blind, mute, lame, unspeaking, unthinking people. And Jesus comes to loosen the mouth open the eyes and unstop the ears, spiritually, of all these people whose whose condemnation is their own fault. They got themselves here by their false worship. This woman got herself here by her pagan practices. Her daughter is demonized. But Jesus is the friend of sinners, not just Jewish sinners. Sinners of all kinds, of all races, of all types, of all backgrounds, Jesus Came to proclaim the kingdom which would encompass all peoples. Jesus heals this man as a picture that even degraded pagan Gentiles could become remade in the image of God. A picture of what the gospel promises to the idolatry enslaved, demon oppressed pagan Gentiles is liberation through Jesus out of bondage to muteness and deafness, which also foreshadows the end. Uh, the next few verses in Psalm 135, which the very next verses are, Proclaim, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. That's That's six times in Psalm 135, right after the muteness and the deafness that the Jews are commanded, but you trust the Lord. You bless the Lord, you now start resounding his praise. We're not made mute, we're made to be singers and glories of the Lord God who sends his Messiah to us. And that's what happens here in verse 36 and 37. Jesus is telling them, okay, now stop speaking, keep it quiet. And even though it's disobedience and Calvin will say that they're sinful for doing this, I'm not sure. I think Mark wants us to know that where Jesus goes to those who are parched, and thirsty. When the water of life comes, there is, an, uh, there is an unstoppable nature to the zeal of the proclaiming of his grace and his glory. That is what has happened. They keep on proclaiming the more that he tells them to stop. And they say, all those who, who heard it, they, uh, that as it was zealously being proclaimed, verse 37, he even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. He even gives to you this morning. If you are spiritually blind, you've been around religion all your life and none of it has su- has sunk through your eyes into your heart. You've been hearing gospel promises, but you are spiritually deaf. You're still dead and bound up in your sin and complete decay of the soul. Or, or you can't speak, you're around all this and you hear the singing of, of glorious saints who are so thankful that the Messiah would be this gracious to us and cleanse us from our sins. And, and you're here and you hear it and you hear people sharing the gospel and speaking thankfully to the Lord and you just don't get it. You might say some things, you might learn the script, but spiritually you're mute. You have nothing welling up inside of true thankfulness to the Lord. You've been stopped and you've been decayed inside because of your own sin and enslavement to lusts and practices of evil that are hidden and secret or well-known. That deafness, that blindness is guilty condemnation for sin. And to even you and to the worst of people that you can imagine, you, Jesus says, come. Come, be healed, be saved be forgiven be justified you can receive grace from god that covers not not it's such an insult to use the word covers god's grace covers our sins no it drowns them it dissolves them they're gone Does an ocean cover a cup no it entirely encompasses it makes it to be so small it's insignificant your sins are drowned in the blood of jesus your guilt is gone in the grace of God. And so we are those who, who, who erupt in this way, that we say Jesus has done all things well. When we look back over redemptive history, we understand the Bible and the way that it's written. There's some parts that are confusing. There's, there's other parts that are, that are downright uh, are, are beautiful. But all in all, we look at the whole thing and we say, God has done all things well those he left in blindness to then bring the healing of sight those that he gave much light to to condemn in darkness whatever god's will has been as we as the faithful of god read it we trust we believe and we glory that he has done all things amazingly well or as we look back over our own lives you remember what's what's happened in your life those periods that you knew nothing of God and walked like someone who knew nothing of God. You're, you're a Tyre type of person. You're a Sidonian sort of gal. And, and you lived a life that was as far away from God as possible. Or you look back and you knew you grew up in church. Or you, you, you felt pretty saved. You thought you were a Christian. And whatever the case was, God brought you to conviction of your sins that felt like that felt like somebody you loved was possessed by a demon and that you were deaf and you were blind. That was the, the anguish of soul you were in. And you would give anything to the Lord to take that away, but He wouldn't. He drove down into your heart your guilt and your sinfulness until one day the gospel liberated you, broke the chains, the light shined in, and you realized Jesus is the Savior of people like me. And by faith alone, you're justified. And you look back maybe over the trials and the struggles and the afflictions and the good times and the really difficult times of life and you, and you can not say anything but this, this Jesus. I know the scars I've got. I, I see what I've lost. I know what I don't have. I know. People can point it out all day long. I know I was deaf and mute all my life and I missed out on all those things but Jesus does all things well. I, I got crumbs that were the bread of life that filled my table and I deserved nothing. I was a dog. And I got fed like a prince. He does all things well. Or we can be those who, who need to be warned this morning. As Christians who have received all of this, we need to not act like the disciples and the Pharisees and take this beautiful lamp and put it in a nice little safe basket. Or take a torch and, and hide it under the, under the coat. This gospel of Jesus that is for all people, right? I don't think we've got any Jews here this morning, full-blooded Israelites among us, and yet... Every one of us have have drunk of this will of salvation because of the Gentile hope that is in the Bible. And we need to not be those that that simply acknowledge that, but act like Jesus and take it to the highways and the byways. And the most lost person you know is in in the reach of God by a word. By one click, one, one speaking of his word from heaven, one desire of his heart, and that person can be saved, whoever they are. We don't hold the gospel back from our enemies, from those family members we've just tried with already, from the, the, the co-workers that are no, not friendly to us whatsoever, and we know what response we'll get. We keep taking the gospel to the lost because God has ordained that anyone can come and everyone must come. But of course, this morning, there will be some who simply need to hear the, the, the call to come to Jesus yet again. Because the great tragedy is that you hear of all of God's overflowing grace in Christ, but it's, it's falling on blind eyes, deaf ears, and dead hearts. You need to know that God is gracious to any. That his grace does run out. There, there, is a, there is a point at death when all second, third, trillions of chances you've got to respond to the gospel expire. And, and the words of Paul is that today is the day of salvation. Today the food is spread like a banquet Feast out on the table, and you're all at the table, and you're being commanded, eat, enjoy, take your fill, be satisfied. It's free. But in response to rejection and refusal, time after time, condemnation comes. Blindness builds up, callousness of heart. You never hear the gospel and leave unchanged. It's either callousing you, making you, making you despise it more, backing you away from the table every time you see it spread or you're coming closer, and God is saving you. So I'm going to pray now over us that we would delight in and love this gospel of God's grace to all people foreshadowed through Mark, but also that those who are here among us and not believing, maybe other people think you do, maybe you're certain of where you're at, I'm going to pray that you would believe and be saved today, that God is gracious enough for all of us. Let's pray. Father God, we, we don't even deserve crumbs that fall. We don't deserve drops of your gracious water in the dust to even lick up. Even that is beyond us. And we, we do deserve the worst of your wrath and the fullest of your condemnation. God, we thank you that even though we have no right to demand, we have received a covenant in Jesus that we can rest on and believe and trust, that you've made promises, that any vile sinner that comes regardless of racial, religious, sinful background, we can come and receive full grace despite what we do in Jesus Christ by faith alone. I pray, Lord, that we would trust that. We would not seek now again to load up good works so that you can continue to love us, but that we would rest in your grace that found us naked, poor, and hungry, and clothed us, and fed us, and raised us in grace. But God, I also pray that those who would be here today and have, a, have a, an abiding sense and a, and a building sense of their sin and realizing that they are guilty before a holy God and that if there is any righteousness in you, God, you will, you will destroy them and you will judge them. You will not let them into heaven. You will not bring them into the covenant of love and blessing. But Lord, we thank you that you are just. But by your justice, you pour your wrath on Jesus, and therefore are able to righteously, justly receive Sinners who have faith. Please, Lord, give faith to the heart. Give hope and belief to the hopeless cases that they can believe. Even me. Even I can be saved by trusting. Lord, please bring them to yourself. Save them in Jesus and glorify your name. And everybody said, Amen.